ten years on. Ten years on. Time to dust off the old where were you when you heard the news question. By chance, I was in Boston, preparing to present a radio interview and call-in program. Hi, Michael Goldfarb. This is The Connection. America's under attack this morning. A series of bombs along the East Coast has led to the destruction of the World Trade Center and an attack on the Pentagon. The first attack came shortly before 9 a.m. this morning, the height of the morning rush hour in downtown New York. Two planes slammed into each of the towers of the World Trade Center. Uh, about a half an hour after those events, President Bush came out and made this statement. We've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. This was not what the day was supposed to hold. The Connection was an interview call-in program, one hour on the news, one hour on culture. The previous day I had spent the second hour talking to Salman Rushdie. It was that kind of show. On the morning of 9-11, I was gearing up for another big beast, Jack Welch, head of General Electric, the world's largest corporation. While I was figuring out how I was going to take him to task for commercializing TV news, GE owned NBC, the station's news director came to the Connection cubicle and urged us to come look at the pictures from New York. A plane had hit the World Trade Center. Maybe we should change the show. I asked sarcastically, are we going to do an hour on aviation accidents? Not more than ten seconds after we got to the newsroom, the second plane hit. Live. As we watched, I cursed. It's Osama, I said loudly, saying a name I instantly knew I could not say on air that day. What do you do when one era ends and another begins, as you watch it on TV? How do you go on the air and broadcast it on radio? Keep it calm, descriptive, and, as my colleague Bob Oak says, stick to the facts, such as they are. What we do know is that at least two planes crashed into the buildings, one each. You could see uh, dramatic footage in slow motion of the second plane crashing into the second tower, actually uh, intentionally turning into it, and later another explosion at the Pentagon. Bob, I need to interrupt you for just a second. It's just been confirmed to me that one of the planes that crashed into the World Trade Center was American Airlines Flight 11 from Boston to Los Angeles. I'm looking at the pictures. I continue to, to be amazed at the, the pall of smoke drifting out over New York Harbor. Um, the picture calls to mind to me the, the famous photograph of St. Paul's Cathedral rising above the, the smoke and debris of the Blitz. All of lower Manhattan seems to be covered in this smoke, and the surviving World Trade Tower uh, looks like an enormous manufacturing chimney gaping smoke. You embrace the chaos. Knowledgeable guests arrive, are brought into the studio. No time for introductions. You fumble over their names. Your headset is full of contradictory chatter and instructions from the program's producer and studio director. You hear, but don't really listen, to the answers your experts give to your questions. When you hear a second and a half of silence in the studio, you turn to the other guest, say their name, hopefully correctly, with a slight rise on the last syllable so they know it's their turn to speak. Repetition is everything. Assume that people are just tuning in and still haven't quite figured what the hell is going on. 
Try and summarize correctly, even when the director or producer is feeding you new information while you're speaking. Just to uh, recapitulate again, the timeline is now becoming clear. The events are unfolding so quickly. The first plane crashed into a tower of the World Trade Center shortly before 9 a.m. this morning. Second plane just after 9 a.m. President Bush spoke, um, called the crashes apparent terrorist attacks and a national tragedy. Shortly thereafter, an aircraft crashed into the Pentagon just outside of Washington. And I've just been informed that a car bomb is reported to have exploded just outside the State Department. This is uh, after uh, reports of a bomb going off at, Capitol, at the Capitol building. Of course, no car bomb had gone off at the State Department, nor had there been one at the Capitol. The chaos we were experiencing in our radio studio had claimed the wire services, AP and Reuters, as well as television news. We were sucked into a feedback loop of rumor. We tried to keep things fact-based, not speculate, but really the only facts were the ones you could see with your own eyes. And the sight of the remaining tower burning, lower Manhattan and New York Harbor covered with a pall of ash and smoke, specific as the image was, could only raise more questions. Who did it? Can't ask that. Can't rush to judgment. Even though anyone with a modicum of knowledge knew this was the work of Al-Qaeda. But how might it have been planned? That you could ask. My guests were terrorism experts at the nexus of elite education and the security services. Surely they might have an idea. But events overtook even the most perceptive comments. We do know this is an extremely sophisticated group, presumably with a membership that can be drawn upon at need, perhaps even a group with sleepers in the United States or individuals that were brought in. Uh, it, it, it is hard to speculate. It, it is hard to speculate, but I mean, could you talk a bit about the kinds of skills that terrorist groups actually have? The or Oh my, as I watch, we, we do have a television in the studio, the second tower of the World Trade Center has just collapsed. The skyline of lower Manhattan is irrevocably altered. A plume of smoke. My guests and I, I can only tell you listeners, are shocked. The tower has come down. The World Trade Center's twin towers no longer exist. Now the chaos becomes a roar in the head. Ask questions conduct the conversation, but the words of my mouth were not the meditations of my heart or my memory. Although I have lived most of my adult life in London, I'm a native New Yorker. I watched those buildings rise on the southern horizon of my youth. An image kept coming back while asking questions, a memory. A cold, clear winter night, sometime in the late 1960s, when the towers were under construction. Crossing Lower Fifth Avenue near Washington Square Park and noticing the building's steel frame covered in red and white lights. For the first time, the towers were now higher in the sky than the Grand Arch in the middle of Washington Square. Year in, year out, this was the spot where I monitored their progress. I knew them from the inside. In the late 70s, during my acting days, when part-time jobs and the dole were my real source of income, I had spent a couple of weeks working as a file clerk in an office on the 92nd floor of one of the towers. 
Watching them come down, I remembered the morning rush from the subway to the lift. You had to change lifts somewhere around the 50th floor to get to the upper levels. There was always a massive crush of people around 8.45, trying to get to their desks by 9. Some mornings, it took longer to get from the subway to the office, 90-plus floors above me, than it did to get to the World Trade Center from my flat on 15th Street, several miles away. How many thousands of people were in the middle of that vertical commute when the planes hit? How many hundreds of thousands were scurrying around the windswept plaza to other office buildings? As TV cameras showed a never-ending swirl of dust and smoke billowing around lower Manhattan, I thought of how you could look down on the clouds from the window of that 92nd-floor office, as if you were in an airplane sailing above bad weather. And on a clear day, in the late afternoon, you could follow the twin shadows the buildings cast, a long diagonal cutting across Manhattan, the East River, and Queens, to Long Island Sound, all the way to Connecticut. Over. Done. Ask a question, go to the phones, listen to more instructions, try to watch the clock, relay more rumors, temporarily holding the classification of fact. Do not, do not mention casualty counts. They're always off, but it's not possible to think that it will be less than many, many thousands. When the show was over, the post-mortem was fairly brief. The event was still going on. It would go on for days. We knew that the program would have to deal with this catastrophe till the end of the week. With the combined faculties of Harvard, MIT, Tufts, and Boston University on hand, and with most of them stuck in town, we knew there would be no shortage of experts to call on to come in and talk about this event from any angle you could think of. But there was one radiophonic dilemma to sort out. The music. You don't think of it. The music on speech radio is part of the background sound picture, and it can disappear without trace or comment. In public radio, in the U.S., however, music is an essential part of programming rhythm. It's used as a nonverbal endpoint to segments in the news programs, a way of pointing the listener to a change of subject, a metaphorical breathing space. The Connection had a very distinctive theme song, Herbie Hancock's Cantaloupe Island. As you can hear, it swings, it's breezy, but has some edge. And we knew it was totally inappropriate. We huddled to decide what to play in its place. I was deputized to think of something that would work. Ten years later, I'm still thinking. What music is appropriate to mark an unprecedented national catastrophe? Unprecedented in its nature, its scope, and unprecedented for having been experienced in real time through the verisimilitude of broadcast images and sound. The abstract language of music, with its direct connection to our emotional core, is the only form of expression human beings possess to deal with such an extreme event, but the combination of feelings that swirled around us that day were hard to imagine being reconciled in a single sting of music. Grief, rage, fear, dread were the foremost emotions being felt across the country that day, and they had to be balanced against a musical sound that expressed America, and that has always been a more hopeful sound. I had an idea straight away. A piano piece, the prelude in E-flat minor by Dmitry Shostakovich, as played by Sviatoslav Richter. 
perversely, this has always been a favorite piece, calling to my mind a sense of standing alone against fate, bleeding, battered, and resolute. That was the image that came to mind for my city and country, whose sense of itself had been undone in the space of a few hours. Later, I would find out that more than 200 years ago, the German writer Christian Schubert had tried to classify in words the emotions each musical key create in a listener. Of E-flat minor, or D-sharp minor, depending on how the composer chooses to write the key signature, he wrote, Feelings of the anxiety of the soul's deepest distress, of brooding despair, of blackest depression, of the most gloomy condition of the soul. If ghosts could speak, their speech would approximate this key. No surprise that it's a key used mostly by Russian composers, and in the end, that's why I didn't suggest the piece. It sounded too Russian, not American enough. What is the American sound? The country is too big and the culture is too complex. There isn't just one. Jazz enthusiasts claim their music as America's indigenous classical music. They have a case. But a key element of jazz is swing, as I said, and that was inappropriate to the day. And jazz signifies urban. Miles Davis was appropriate for New York, but not the rest of the country, so jazz was out. Same with the blues, music created out of the pain of hundreds of years of slavery and segregation, a major part of American history, but this was a new event, not connected to that bleak note in our national story. No, it would have to be something orchestral. I cursed Oliver Stone for turning Samuel Barber's adagio for strings into a national cliché when he used it in Platoon, and clichés wouldn't do to mark this occasion. By general agreement, the closest any composer has come to summarizing the nation in orchestral music is Aaron Copland. And I started running music cues from his third symphony in my memory, looking for things that might work. The bruised sound of violins and woodwinds at the start of the third symphony with the almost there, there, it'll be all right response from the brass. Hint at quiet strength being recovered after some terrible struggle. The symphony was composed immediately after the Second World War. Its four movements, a summary of those years, beginning with the theme of quiet resolve, which develops a few minutes later into a passage of genuine rage. Music signifies, 
the American Colossus roused. And on that day, ten years ago, the roar in my head, the memories of the World Trade Center rising up, the work of years, its destruction, the work of an hour, the bodies atomized in that toxic pall of smoke. But the music is too intense and not possible to turn into a 30-second or 45-second loop of sound that a presenter can read a bit of script over. Something calmer, quieter was needed. the incidental music for Quiet City. Copland wrote the music for a play that failed and then reworked the score. The orchestra sounds like sunrise through a mist before a trumpet solo takes over. This might have worked, that last post feel. But as always in Copeland, the hope shines through. That's why he's considered the American composer. The hope that dominates his sound. Hope. Tomorrow will be better. Has always been the secret of why my native country has survived traumas that would have destroyed other societies. I didn't suggest Quiet City. Hope didn't seem right that day. It was about anger. Back in my hotel room, I did a phone interview with the World Service about the day's events and surprised myself with how angry I was. I told the interviewer, this changes everything. I meant the U.S. would go it alone in its pursuit of the perpetrators. Multilateral approaches were finished. America would send out a posse to find Osama, and the international community could go hang if it wanted the niceties of process at the U.N. What I didn't mean, what I didn't know, is that hope, as expressed in so much of Copeland's music, was what had changed that day. It was gone. These last ten years, characterized by profligacy, wars that failed, spending trillions of borrowed money, bespeaks an attitude of living for today because tomorrow we may all be dead. Anyway, I couldn't think of any music that was appropriate. Silence was the best I could come up with. A decade on from 9-11, I'm certain I was right. Silence, in such circumstances is the most eloquent music.